verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know this man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess it's difficult to read this. And at the same time be excited about a baby in a manger. This is hard. It puts a damper on the season. But Lord, I pray that you would take that worldly spirit in us that cannot see the two things together. And you would help us to see with the the eyes of faith. Help us to see the glory of the cross. Help us to see, Lord, the destined day arise and be able to say that with faith and with with joy in our hearts, knowing that this is the day of our salvation. Give us the faith of Christ and his followers after him. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I hope that you've seen by now as we've been walking our way through Passion Week uh, in Matthew's Gospel, that Matthew is 
communicating to us. He's been setting this up for us, showing us that Jesus' death, his crucifixion, was not an accident. Jesus willingly subjected himself to what would become the means of our salvation. And that's a major theme that we're seeing, and I've preached it every week that we've been in Matthew chapter 26, as we've walked slowly towards the cross of Christ. And it's a message that you see throughout the rest of the New Testament, wherever the gospel was preached by the apostles, wherever the Christ was proclaimed, it was proclaimed that he died in accordance with the scriptures. That is primary. It's essential to the preaching of the gospel, which is why I've been preaching it that way. But, but I'm going to take a break this week from that theme. We're going to step back just a little bit because Matthew steps back just a little bit from that message. We're going to broaden our view out a little bit. I want you to ask a question, or I want to ask you a question rather, as we move into this. Have you ever wondered why in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we know are about Jesus, why is Peter's story included? Why is there so much about Peter, really second to Jesus, and so little about Peter's brother, Andrew? Certainly, right, over the course of Jesus' entire ministry, Andrew's there. Certainly there were some things that Andrew said and did that were worth writing down. Or how about Thaddeus? There is almost nothing about Thaddeus at all. Andrew at least gets something. There's almost nothing about Thaddeus anywhere in the Bible. The only reason that we even know that he's an apostle is that Matthew and Mark include him in in their list of the apostles one time. But the problem with that is we're not even sure that Thaddeus is his name. There's a footnote when you look at those, that his name might have been Labaius. This guy is so unimportant that we don't even know his actual name. And he's one of the 12. He's never mentioned in Acts, though. He's never mentioned in the epistles, in Paul's writings, in Peter's writings. He helped, as we do see in Acts, that the 12 helped establish the church. Labaius or Thaddeus or whatever his name was, was there. He helped to teach in the church and to pray for the proclamation of the gospel, but he's never mentioned in the gospels. It's Peter who gets all the attention. Why? Well, we need to remember, as we're reading the gospels, why the gospels were written. Why why were they given to us? Yes, they're written to show us Jesus is the Messiah. Boy, have we seen that. He fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. But they're not written... As um, like encyclopedia articles or, or, or written for a newspaper. The, the Gospels are personal. They were written for the New Testament church. And not only did these early churches receive these Gospels as, as arguments that Jesus is the Messiah, but they also received the Gospels as instruction on what it means to follow Christ and how to follow Christ. Add to that, so you have that factor, but add to that 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 a lot of these early Christians and these early churches knew who Peter was, 
Right? When you read the book of Acts, you see why Peter is important. He's the guy who preached the first gospel. He, he had the first gospel proclamation on Pentecost. He, he's the one who was rescued from prison, not once, but twice. Once by, by an angel. Peter was the apostle who was filled with the Holy Spirit and stood up to the religious leaders and the political leaders. He was the bold one who trusted God. He didn't fear death. All the way to the end. So think, your average Christian in Jerusalem or in Antioch or in Corinth, they would have heard stories of, the, of Peter the legend, the legendary Christian, the man who stood up to the man. <laughs> and, and, and what would they have thought? Why, I couldn't be like that. I couldn't do that. That's Peter. He's special. That's why I think Peter is included in the Gospels, to dispel that myth. As we read Matthew's gospel account, we see, certainly we see the Peter of history, right? right? He, he really did and say the things that, that, that Matthew records and Mark and Luke and John record. But he's, as a tool for our instruction, he's more than just a man who did these things recorded in history. And Peter really is a tool. Isn't he? He, he, also, he also represents, in many ways, not just the leader of the apostles, but Peter represents all Christians everywhere. He is, he is every man. He's the stand-in for you and me. And we see that because he's, he's like you and me. He's a self-confident sinner. He's a doubter. He's worldly-minded. He's arrogant. He's self-absorbed. And yet he's called by Jesus. And he follows Jesus. And because of, of Christ's work for him, because of the Spirit in him, he is eventually transformed into the Peter of the book of Acts. Matthew tells us the story of Peter throughout his gospel, throughout the gospel of Matthew. Matthew tells us Peter's story. And we see Peter slowly coming to faith. He's slowly coming to understanding. He's, we see the ups and downs. We, we see the, the ins and outs, the, the back and forth with Peter. But we see in Peter how we come to faith. And we see in Peter how we grow in faith. Think back all the way to the beginning, just as a couple of examples of, of what we've seen with Peter in Matthew's Gospel. Way back in Matthew chapter 4, Peter's there on the, the, the seaside, and Jesus says, follow me. And what happens? Peter follows him. What do, what do we learn from that? Well, the way that Peter began to follow Jesus was through Jesus' call. And the way that we begin to follow Jesus is through Jesus' call. In Matthew 14, Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, and he says, call me out to you, and, and, and Jesus calls him out, and Peter walks out on the water and then begins to sink. And what did we learn? That it's not in our power, it's not in our strength that we're saved, but it is in Jesus' strength that we are saved. No matter how confident we are, we'll sink. And then in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? When they were trying to figure out who Jesus is. And Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did we learn there? Jesus told him something that is central to this entire gospel. 
I would say, the main point of Matthew's gospel, one of them. Jesus told him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You're awesome. No. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God reveals to us Jesus' kingship. It's a revelation from God. It's not our own discovery. That way none of us can boast. And then just a few verses later, right after that pinnacle moment at Peter's discipleship, he realizes he doesn't have it all together. Just a few verses later, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to the cross. And Peter rebukes Jesus. He tries to stop him. Remember that? And then Jesus told him that no, not, not only must he go to the cross, Jesus must go to the cross, but in order to follow Jesus, all of the disciples have to take up their cross. And, and, and he told Peter something really important about the Christian life at that moment. And this message was for us too. For whoever, that whoever is all of us, for whoever would save his own life, would lose it. But whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. What do we see there? Well, for one, Jesus' lordship and his suffering, his kingship and the cross are inseparable. And secondly, following Jesus and living for ourselves are incompatible. We can't do that. Those are all of our Peter lessons so far. And there are a few others. But we're now at the point in Matthew's gospel where all that Peter has been taught and that all, all that we've been taught about what it means to follow Jesus has come to this crisis moment. All right? There's this, this angst that is being exposed in, in Peter's soul. He genuinely, genuinely believes Jesus is the Messiah and he genuinely wants to follow Jesus as Messiah. He has said that and I, I believe him. He wants to keep following Jesus. But he's also realizing now that Jesus was not exaggerating when he said he was going to die. All that Jesus had said would happen is happening. He's going to die. There's nothing anyone can do to stop it. And that means for Peter that that next passage in Matthew 16 was also true. That his life is probably also in danger. And he wants to stay alive, and he wants to follow Jesus, and these things are at tension, aren't they? There's a crisis moment. And Peter's asking inside, internally, will I stand with Jesus? Can I stand with Jesus? So as we work our way through this text this morning, I want you to do what Matthew and the Holy Spirit are encouraging us to do here. See yourself in Peter, and consider, for those of you who are Christians, Consider that Jesus is Messiah and consider the cost of what it means to be a true witness to that reality. Will you stand with Jesus? So what we're going to do is just go verse by verse through, through, through this, the rest of the chapter here. So let's look at verse 57. The same mob that we had seen in the garden arresting Jesus has now brought him back to Caiaphas' house, the, the chief priest. And think, if you can about a, a large estate, walled estate, big house with a big courtyard and kind of an open patio is, is probably something like the scene that's being painted here. 
The scribes are there. They've been waiting. The elders are there. The chief priest is there. Pretty much all of the men who should have been leading Israel to worship Jesus, but instead have led them to arrest Jesus, they're all there. And who else is there? Well, look at verse 58. Our every man is there. Peter is there. Look at what Matthew tells us. And, and don't, don't, don't think Matthew has accidentally put this in here. Matthew wants us to see Peter is there. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see. All right, so last we saw, last week, all the disciples had fled, right? Jesus is arrested, and then it's just like rats. They, they, all, they all scatter. Well, apparently, Peter didn't go very far. Maybe he went and hid behind a bush and just kind of snuck up behind them. But Peter wants to see what will become of Jesus' arrest. And he's getting as close as he can to see what's happening. That's the description here. He goes into the courtyard, sits down with the guards. He wants to see what's happening without being right there beside Jesus in the thick of it. He wants to see with his own eyes what will be the end. And by, by the end, Matthew means the outcome. The, the reason why Matthew puts Peter here in verse 58 and not just later on in verse 69 is, like I said, he wants us to know Peter is present for the trial of Jesus. He's present. So we see that the camera zooms in on Peter. He's sitting there so that all of the audience knows, all of us reading it know Peter's there. And then it zooms back out and then zooms back in on the trial itself. That's if you can call it a trial, right? It's more of a scam. Star court, as the, the British used to do in revolutionary times. They, they've got Jesus in custody, but they don't even know what to try him for. They don't have an accusation. They've arrested him, but they don't have probable cause. So they have to fabricate it on the spot. Look what Matthew says in verse 59. The whole council is seeking false testimony. The whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, that's the 70 scribes, priests, chief priests, the elders. They're all looking for somebody, talking to their friends. Hey, did you hear what Jesus said? Did you hear what Jesus said? Does anybody have anything that we can bring against Jesus? We don't care what it is. Make it up if you have to. They're literally looking for false witnesses, false testimony. And yet, what's the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not bear false witness. And what are these guys looking for? A false witness. Don't miss the irony here. The teachers of the law who don't like Jesus because of his teaching of the law are actively seeking someone to break the ninth commandment of the law. So that they can break the sixth commandment of the law with a clear conscience. But there's a problem, isn't there? And it's kind of comical in the way that Matthew tells the story. These men have, have no trouble ignoring the Ten Commandments, but it's really important to them that they observe some of the more obscure commandments, like there must be two witnesses that agree. It's like Jeffrey Epstein insisting his driver not exceed the speed limit. Right? Every criminal has some laws they won't break. That's too soon? Okay, too soon, all right. But, <laughs> but in verse 59, 
And in verse 60, Matthew tells us they're having trouble finding these two false witnesses. We can find some witnesses, but none of them agree. Look what he says. There's this long list of men willing to lie about Jesus to make, to make these powerful men happy. A lot of people are willing to say what the leadership wants to hear. But verse 60 says, they found none. That is, they found no false testimony that would justify putting Jesus to death. None, though many false witnesses came forward. The problem that they're having is not a shortage of false witnesses. It's not a shortage of people willing to lie. And the problem isn't so much that the false testimonies are not death penalty worthy. The problem is that it's such a disorganized mess of a conspiracy that they can't find two liars whose testimonies agree. And then Matthew says at the end of verse 60, at last, at last, finally, who knows how long this has taken and who knows what a joke this has been, at last two come forward with the same testimony. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Well, now, now the religious leaders have something they can work with. And don't forget, who's there? Peter's there. At this point, Peter could have said something, couldn't he? He could have stood up. He could have testified on Jesus' behalf. He and said something like, he actually said something different than that. He actually said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He did not say, I will destroy the temple. But Peter does not defend Jesus. He doesn't say that. Peter is silent here. I'm just going to ask you, as we're thinking about Peter, identifying with Peter, when was the last time, and I know it's all of us, probably recently, you heard someone falsely attributing a teaching to Jesus. What did you do? You're like, I don't know if I've heard that. Well, yes, you have. The last time you heard someone say, well, Jesus never taught about homosexuality, therefore he must have supported it. You heard that argument? How'd you respond? Did, did you say, Jesus taught us that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that it was created by God for his glory, or did you remain silent? Or, or when, when someone said, Jesus was loving to all, and he taught that we should be loving and accepting of all religions. Jesus never said that. Did you speak up and defend Jesus' honor? Or when someone makes the argument that only the red letters and the direct quotes of Jesus that he says in the Gospels matter, and we can just ignore what Jesus says through the Spirit, through the apostles in the letters. Did you speak up for the things Jesus said? Or do you have a tendency more to, to maintain Peter's silence, standing back in the shadows? They don't want to cause a scene, right? Let them believe what they believe. Peter doesn't speak up. The high priest does. In verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Now, not only could Peter have defended Jesus here, Jesus has been given an opportunity to defend himself, hasn't he? But he doesn't. 
he won't. We've already seen that, that that's not his purpose. His, his mission is the cross. We also know that he has taught his disciples, don't do this, don't give in, don't throw pearls before swine. These guys are not really asking a sincere question here. Jesus' silence gets the high priest even angrier. What he says in verse 63, I adjure you. That, that means that, means that um, he, he's, he's commanding Jesus under oath. He, he's, he's telling Jesus that Jesus must swear an oath to God and answer the question. Kind of the triple dog dare you of Judaism. I adjure you by the living God. Now look what Jesus says. It's, it, it's not, rather, rather not what Jesus says, but what the priest says. I thought this was interesting. Because he's, he's asking, I adjure you by the living God, tell us whether or not you are the Christ. But that's not what he was accused of, right? Well, he was accused of saying that he would destroy the temple. And the priest says, tell us if you say you are the Christ. Do you see the kind of trouble that I'm having here? Why does the high priest demand an answer to the Christ question in response to the temple accusation? Well, here's the thing. The high priest knows his Old Testament. And he knows that the Christ, the Messiah, was meant to both bring destruction and judgment and also the building of the temple. In Malachi 4... We've read this one a few times as we've worked our way through Matthew. The promised one from the Lord, the Messiah, brings judgment. He brings the destruction of Jerusalem. And in Zechariah 6, we haven't looked at this one too much, but the promised one brings the new temple from which he will rule as king and priest. Look at Zechariah 6, 12. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. We've been singing about the branch this morning, haven't we? Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. That's a Messiah promise. And Caiaphas knows his Bible. And he knows when he hears of someone saying he will destroy the temple and build the temple, he's thinking of Zechariah, and he's thinking of that Messiah claim. Jesus' supposed temple threat is interpreted by the high priest as Jesus claiming to be the Christ. That's why he asks him that question. Tell us, are you the Christ? But there's something else I want you to see here, going back to our Peter problem. Look carefully at the words that the priest says to Jesus. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now think back to Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Peter was the one who said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember that? Jesus talked about it earlier. And here is Peter. He's in the courtyard. He's watching this trial unfold, and he's hearing the high priest ask Jesus if that is true. 
And yet again, Peter is silent. If Peter were to be true to what he had promised Jesus, that he would, they all would fall away, I will never fall away. He thinks he's being true to that now because he's, he's there, he's followed him, kind of, into the courtyard. If Peter were truly willing to die to defend the honor of his Savior, well, now would be the time, Peter, to stand up and say, yes, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Everybody would turn and pay attention there to Peter. But Peter's silent. It's just a reminder to us, brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, those of you who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that means, do you know what that means? That he is the king who sits on the throne. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is the highest authority, the highest ruler? That's what Christ means. Do you believe as we confess this morning that one day at his name, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth? Every created thing in the universe will one day bow to this king. If you believe that, as Peter is claiming to have believed that, then when his name is dishonored, when his lordship is challenged or questioned, we have an obligation to speak up. To speak up as his true witnesses. Those who know that he is king. And the only other man who could have done that, aside from Jesus himself, is silent. Well, this time Jesus does respond. He defends himself, sort of. Look at verse 64. In response to the high priest's statement, Jesus says, you have said so. So he says, I adjure you, Tell us if you're the Christ, and Jesus says, you have said so. Which is Jesus' way of saying, if that's how you want to put it, yes. Right? But, But then Jesus adds the statement, but I tell you. Now, we've seen that before. You remember way back in the Sermon on the Mount, whenever Jesus would correct the teaching of the day, he would say, I tell you. So, you have heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. That formula, you say, but I say, is, is his way of revealing the right understanding of Scripture. And that's what he's doing here. He's correcting the religious leader's understanding of Scripture. You say that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, but I tell you what that really means. I am the Lord from Psalm 110, and I am the Son of Man, from Daniel 7. That's the claim Jesus is making in verse 64. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man, Daniel 7, seated at the right hand of power, Psalm 110, and coming on the clouds of heaven, Daniel 7. Look at Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And that passage comes up over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, doesn't it? To show Jesus is that one. And this coming on the clouds bit is Jesus saying, I am he from Daniel 7. Look at Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I'll put it on the screen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, 
there came one like a son of man. And notice where he's coming. Where's he going? He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So to see the one coming on the clouds is to see him coming where? To the ancient of days. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So listen, when Jesus says, from now on, this is what you're going to see. He's saying, when you ask me if I'm the Christ, I know that you think that that means I am he who will rule from Zion, from Jerusalem. That's your understanding, a political ruler. But Jesus is correcting. But I tell you, I am the Christ, but I am the Christ in the way that David teaches about the Christ in Psalm 110. I am the Christ in the way that Daniel teaches about the Christ in Daniel 7. I am the Son of Man, Son of God, who rules and judges from heaven at the right hand of God. And when Jesus says, from now on, he doesn't mean 6,000 years from now. He means from now on, from here on out. He's talking about what is about to take place Later on that day, Jesus is about to be beaten and crowned with a crown of thorns and hung on a cross. To you and I and to the world, that does not look like coming on the clouds. It looks like a man who's been taken advantage of, falsely accused, unjustly judged, victimized, and killed like a common thief. That's what it looks like to us and to the world. That's why the cross is a stumbling block. Because this here is the mystery of the cross. What looks to us like failure and defeat is the crowning of the Messiah. Think again about what we have been confessing to one another and to the Lord week after week. Because of Jesus' obedience to do what? To go to the cross. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's the Daniel 7 scene. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's the Daniel 7 name, the Son of Man. That's the Psalm 110, Lord, sit at my right hand. The cross is the path to that. It is the path to conquering Satan and sin and death. The cross is how Jesus becomes Messiah, King. The cross is the coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. What Jesus is saying to the Sanhedrin is is literally, from here on out, I will be ascending the hill to take my throne. And the Sanhedrin will see it, won't they? Because they will be the ones that are overseeing the process of Jesus becoming Messiah King. Ruler over all. These men who think that they are condemning Jesus are crowning him King. Because of their actions in judging Jesus and condemning him and in crucifying him, they will unknowingly be seating him 
on the seat of the highest judgment. Passage, though we, because of our, I think, lack of understanding of Scripture, we see this as an end times passage. It's not. Jesus says, from now on, and he means it, this will be happening this very day. And at hearing this, Matthew says in verse 65, the high priest tore his robes, said he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Well, the reason that he calls this blasphemous is because of the understanding he's hearing what Jesus is saying. Right? When, when, when Jesus identifies himself as the Lord from Psalm 110, who sits at the right hand of power, and the Son of Man in Daniel 7, who approaches the Ancient of Days, the high priest knows this man is claiming equality with God. These Old Testament scholars hear that, and they know he deserves death. And here's what we need to see, church. You and I, and all the people we talk to, need to understand this. If what Jesus is claiming about himself is false, then these men are right to condemn him. They're just obeying their law in a twisted way. He's claiming equality with God. He knows it. He knows that the things he said will bring this offense. The Sanhedrin knows it as well. And Jesus knows making this claim will lead to his condemnation. But remember, that's his mission. Isn't it odd then that Jehovah's Witnesses and Arians from all over would say that they know better than these Old Testament scholars? They, they say that, that Jesus never claimed divinity and, and that the Sanhedrin wrongly interpreted him. But the Sanhedrin is condemning Jesus because he's claiming to be equal to, with God. And the only thing that makes them wrong isn't a misinterpretation. The only thing that makes the Sanhedrin wrong is because Jesus is equal with God. He, he really is the Psalm 110 Messiah. He really is the Daniel 7 Messiah. They believe he's a false teacher. And they reveal that that's what they believe about him when they start spitting on him, hitting him, slapping him. And look what they say in verse 68. Prophesy to us, you Christ. They know that the Christ must be a prophet. Prophesy to us. Who is it that struck you? And I don't know exactly what scene is unfolding here, but it, it's horrendous, isn't it? It's such chaos in attacking Jesus, that he's supposed to somehow know who's, who's hitting him. Ironically, though, what's happening is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies. Way back in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and the men who will attack me are the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And who's attacking him here? the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He also prophesied what would happen to him after this. That he'd be further beaten 
and that he would be crucified. And on the third day, he would raise up. And all of those things happened. These men think that they're proving in their, I guess, disrespect and chaotic mob mentality. They think they're proving Jesus is not a prophet. And they're so proud of themselves. But they're actually proving Jesus is a prophet. They're proving through their actions he is the Christ. And all the while, Peter is there, isn't he? Peter knows that Jesus has prophesied about these things. He was there. He knows that these things have been foreseen by Jesus. And he's still there and he's still silent. But Peter's also a part of those prophecies from Jesus. And Matthew's going to show us more prophecy being fulfilled now. So Peter's there in the courtyard. He's watching Jesus' trial with all the other looky-loos. And as Jesus is tried and convicted, the, the mob there, you've seen this happen, that the mob begins to smell blood. They start looking around for other people they can attack. I want to I hit somebody. And that's when this brash little servant girl accuses Peter, rightly, of being one of Jesus' followers. Look at verse 69. You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Peter says, I don't know what you mean. Starts kind of backing up. I mean, you can picture the scene, this little girl coming up to him. He's scared. One of the commentators from a long time ago said that uh, Peter, at this point, if he heard a, a rustling of the leaves, he would, have, he would have been scared. He's scared. I don't know what you mean. He starts to defend himself against this girl. And then another servant girl comes up and, and points, at, points at Peter and, and tells the crowd the same thing. Peter hears that. He denies that. This time, it, he doubles down. Right? It's not just, I don't know what you mean. Now it's, I swear, I don't you know what you mean. I don't know this man. And the contrast that we're supposed to see here as we look at these two things side by side, Jesus was forced to swear an oath, right, just a few moments ago. I adjure you by the living God, tell us whether you are the Christ. And then here's Peter, the servant of Christ, also swearing an oath that he doesn't know Christ. I do not know this man. By now, Peter is closer to the edge of the courtyard as he's kind of trying to find a path out to seems like there's probably quite a ruckus happening. He's further away from Jesus. He's almost clear. He's almost at the gate. But there's, there's more of a murmur. And now that the crowd has, is all turning their attention over to Peter. Verse 73 says, The bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And if, what they're saying is, they would have had the northern, the, the, the Galilean accent. It would have sounded different, and that would have betrayed Peter. Not a whole lot of Galileans in their mind would have been there, but remember this is a time when actually there were a lot of them there because this is Passover week. So people have come from all over the land to be there, but, but this Galilean in particular has got them riled up. What does Peter say? Because it's not just one of the servant girls now. Now this is an entire crowd, and Peter is just 
more and more afraid of being identified with Christ. Because he sees that crowd. He sees what they're doing to Jesus. And he sees and knows what they were likely to do to him. So what does he do? Look at verse 74. He began to invoke a curse on himself. So it's not just that he's swearing to God anymore. Now he is invoking a curse on himself. That's something like, may God damn me to hell if I'm lying to you. I do not know this man. He's not, he, listen, Peter's not just meekly denying Christ here. Jesus said, you'll deny me three times. He's going a long way into denial. Peter is taking on an entirely new identity. He, he, he knows I can't be neutral anymore. I can't be indifferent anymore. They're not listening to me. He has to take on a, an entirely new identity. Now he believes he must be a man who is opposed to Jesus. And he's proclaiming to all these people listening, I would prefer to be damned to hell than to be identified with him. What in the world is happening to Peter? You've, you've been here before. I've been here before. Much smaller scale probably. Not many of us have said that before. But think of the last time, just to, just to put yourself emotionally in what's going on. Think of the last time you said something to your spouse or a friend or a family member. You, you made some accusation against them, called them some, some name that you knew wasn't true, but you were trying to get a rise. They were hurt, starts the argument, and then you doubled down on your meanness. Because the, the only way now is to either apologize and back down or to, to go forward, to double down. In our pride, we, when we're stuck, what do we do? We, you know, you're like the truck in the mud. You just, you just press the gas hard. <laughs> and that, that dig the ditch deeper. Slinging mud and sin and pain all over the place. Our sin has that effect on us. When, we are, when we've given ourselves over to some sin, like Peter has, when we're caught, we must either repent or go deeper. There's no neutral territory anymore. And in our flesh, we go deeper every time. The pride of the flesh drives us into full-on identification with sin. This is just who I am, and I'm going for it. I'm just an angry person. I'm just a liar, so I'm going to lie. I'm just a thief, so I'm going to continue to steal. I'm just an adulterer, so I'm going to stay in that relationship. I am gay. I am an addict. Because of my pride, I can't relent. I can't back down. This is my identity now. Peter is at that point. He's embracing his denial of Christ so fully that he's calling God as a witness against him. But by the grace of God, what happens? The rooster crows. The mercy of God. Oh, the mercy of God. New every morning, like the rooster crowing. The mercy of God rings out like a song in Peter's headlong sprint into this new sinful identity is just stopped. It's like a wall. That sound. 
It's like a wall in front of Peter, and he just smashes his face into it. And he can't go any further. Were it not for the rooster, can you just imagine, were it not for the rooster, where would Peter head? Were it not for the rooster, Peter would continue. He would deny Jesus again and again and again until either he became a persecutor of Christians or he killed himself like Judas does. But God had mercy on Peter. When Peter hears the rooster, he's brought to repentance by remembering Jesus' words. Look at verse 75. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Our strong Peter, right? The man that we have been with this whole time. The man who stood up against Christ and said, I'll never deny you. The man who took out his sword and cut off the priest's servant's ear. The man willing to follow Jesus into the courtyard even. When almost all the other disciples had run away. Strong Peter is finally broken. And he's humbled by his own sin. And more importantly, he's humbled by Christ's knowing words. He remembered the saying of Jesus. And those, hearing those words just repeated in his heart brought him to repentance. He remembered who Jesus is. This is my king. This is my Messiah. And I have denied him. He went out and he wept bitterly. Way back, more than a thousand years ago, so we're talking 800s AD, even some before that, but the church in Europe decided that the rooster would be the symbol for Christianity. Not the cross, the rooster. For hundreds of years, of history, wherever you, wherever you went, in, in especially Western Europe, you were more likely to find a rooster weather vane on top of a church than you were a cross. In fact, in 820, it became a law that your church had to have a rooster weather vane on top of it. Why? Well, when we see the cross, we know that Jesus died. But when we see the rooster, we know that he died because of our sin. There's a difference there, isn't there? Friends, you and I are Peter. In our weakness, we will not speak up to defend the name of Jesus. We will remain silent. And in our weakness, when we are confronted, we will not be able to say, Yes, I'm with Jesus. Yes, I will die with Jesus. We can't do it. I asked you earlier, the very beginning, to ask yourself the question, will I stand with Jesus? And here's the answer, no. In our flesh, like Peter, we will deny him again and again and again and again. Peter failed. But Peter was supposed to fail. Peter had to fail. 
in order that, that, that he could realize that he could not follow Christ on his own. Peter had to fail in order to know that he wasn't the hero, that Jesus was the one doing the saving, that Peter was the one that needed saving. Peter needed to fail in order to know what the cross was for later on that day. Messiah didn't come to gather an army to defend him. He came to die. And Peter had to know his weakness. He had to be brought to nothing to know that Jesus was being brought even further down for him. And in being brought to nothing, Jesus was being exalted. Peter had to fail so that he could understand his need for the cross. And I'm not saying here, don't misinterpret me, please. Romans chapter 6. I'm not saying here that we are to celebrate Peter's failure. What shall we say? Shall, shall we go and sin and sin and sin so that more grace would be seen? No, that's not what I'm saying. Peter's failure was in his sin. He denied knowing Christ. He called horrendous curses down from God. We are not to celebrate Peter's sin or any sin. But we are to see here, God was sovereign over this. God didn't cause Peter to sin. But he used it. He used it to humble Peter. And he used Peter's humility to bring him to repentance. And in his repentance, Peter became far, far more useful to the gospel than he ever would have been. He, he became ready through his repentance, to proclaim the gospel of repentance and faith and in dying to ourselves to follow Christ. And in the same way, I'm not saying that any of us should celebrate any of our sin. But every one of us has sin in our past that we regret. Things that we wish we could undo. Things that if there were... A book of everything you've ever done, you would just be terrified for anybody to see it. Whether that's some addiction that you look back on with shame or, or anxiety that has brought your downfall, or, or, or maybe for some of you it's just it's parenting failures. You neglected your family, you abused your family, you, you didn't lead your family in Christ, and now you're realizing the consequences. The reason that Peter here is sick to his stomach, the reason that Peter is, is, is in bitter remorse and sorrow, the reason God allows for that in his life is so that he would know his deep, deep need for Jesus' saving work. And the same is true for you. The reason why God has permitted you to sin and then in his mercy brought you out of it so that you would look back on it and you would know your weakness and you would know your absolute desperation for Jesus. We do not celebrate sin. We do not celebrate Peter's sin. But oh, how we celebrate the repentance that God has brought about in him. Amen? Praise God for the bitter tears. Because now the power of the cross, the power of forgiveness can be made known in Peter's life. Glory be to God. 
For some of you, you can look back now and you can see that God has led you to, in His mercy, He has led you to repentance and you can praise Him. For some of you, this morning is the rooster crowing. For some of you this morning, you are in sin, you are headlong, going in a direction that will lead you to deny Christ. The rooster is crowing. Remember Christ's words and receive His mercy and repent and follow Him. Every New Testament writer experienced this. Every follower of Christ has experienced this. The reason that Paul says to the Corinthian church, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. There's a reason that the Lord told Paul that Christ's power would be made known not through Paul's strength or the power of his preaching or the power of his personality, but through Paul's weakness. That's why Peter's in this story, isn't it? So that you and I would see strong Peter weeping bitterly and we would know what repentance is and we would know what faith is and we would know what forgiveness is. Christ's power is made known through you when you are brought to nothing to follow him. Let's pray.